Amen. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm going to give you a heads up, because guess what? We're going to turn to one of those unusual books in the Bible again. The book of Haggai. And you'd be forgiven for thinking I like to preach out of minor prophets that start with H. But, hey, uh, it's the third book from the... Uh, it, third book before you end the Old Testament, and you can find it in the table of contents. Uh, we're in the middle. Well, this is the second of a four-sermon series that I've called The King and His Kingdom. It's a topical series, so that means we're not working through a book. We pick a passage. Today we're doing Haggai, uh, Haggai cha- chapter 2. Uh, and last sermon sought to answer the question, how do we think about a new lead pastor and, and kind of address some of our expectations there. So this week, our sermon is seeking to answer this question. How should we begin thinking about a new building, right? Because that's another big change coming on the horizon here shortly. Uh, And hey, here's just a reminder again about why we're doing this. You ever have expectations that you didn't realize you had? And then suddenly your current life circumstances don't match up and you're like, huh, that, kinda, that can kind of hurt, right? And I don't want that to happen to us. So uh, part of what we're doing is we are just maybe saying out loud the questions that we have quietly or just examining, trying to get ourselves to examine expectations, okay? Um, but more important, I said this last week or last time I was up here, more important than even thinking about all the change that's coming and how we're going to deal, uh, like what, how we should think about a new lead pastor, a new building, church growth, and how that might uh, affect our, uh, who we are as Holy Cross, our mission and all that sort of stuff. More than anything, what I hope this series will continue to do is ground us in what doesn't change. Don't we need that? To be grounded in what doesn't change. You know what doesn't change? Our king. Our king and his kingdom purpose. And so, uh, if you have uh, the passage in front of you, uh, it's also in your bulletin, it will be projected on the screen. Would you stand, uh, if you're able and willing, out of respect for the word of God? Haggai, chapter two, we're gonna read verses one through nine. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnants of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Friends, it's a true word, the living God. He gives it to you because he loves you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you 
thank you for meeting with us. We thank you that we are your people. And now, Lord, as we, as we come before your word to be shaped and molded by it, would you, would you do that? Would you come in, shape our hearts so that we leave this place loving you a little bit more, looking a little bit more like you, and knowing your love for us, O oh Lord. Would you fill our hearts with a taste of your glory and a desire to see that, see that glory spread wherever we're at. In your name we pray, amen. Go ahead, grab a seat. All right, so as we uh, are considering the king of this house, remember the question we're asking, right, is how should we begin thinking about our new building? Okay. Uh, we're going to do this in two ways. We're going to look at temptations. So we're going to look at uh, the temptations we might feel when we first set, in, set foot in a building. And we're going to do that by considering the temptations that Haggai's, that the Jews in Haggai's day felt. Um, and then the second bit is we're going to think about the temple, the biblical concept of the temple and how that might help us shape our expectations for our, our building. Okay. Hey, uh, as we dig into temptations, we got to set some context, right? Because odds are you probably haven't heard a sermon from Haggai. You probably don't know exactly what's going on. So here's, here's the man himself. Here's what we know about Haggai. He was a prophet. That's pretty much it. That's all that matters. He was the mouthpiece of God, God's spokesman to God's people in, in a tough time. It's a period of Israel's history that we don't talk about a ton, so I'm going to give you a quick overview of what's, what had just happened. After nearly 400 years of refusing to submit to the Lord as their king and follow his ways, the Lord allowed the Babylonian armies that, that Habakkuk saw in his vision to carry his people away into exile in Babylon in 586 B.C. And in the process, they burned to the ground the glorious temple that Solomon had built for the honor and worship of God, raised it. It was a traumatic moment. A lot of the Old Testament looks back on that and like we have the story told four times because this was a huge deal in the life of God's people. Well, in 538 BC, the Persian emperor Cyrus allowed Jews to return to Israel under one of King David's descendants, Zerubbabel. He's in our passage. Uh, and they pretty much immediately set to work on building or rebuilding the temple, right? And you can kind of picture what that would have been like. Like, imagine, after years and years in exile, not having a place of worship, like you can imagine the kind of occasion it was. Uh, God's people hadn't had a home. They hadn't had a place of worship, a place to call their own. Now, finally, they were going to get their building. Does that sound familiar? Finally, a place to call their own, a place to worship the Lord as he had called them. And you can, can you imagine what that moment would have felt like when they laid the foundations and saw, be, began to envision what this might look like? Well, you actually don't have to imagine it, right? Uh, the Bible records it. And Ezra 3 11 through 13, it says this, and all the people shouted with a great shout and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of their father's house, houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. And although many shouted for joy so that people could not distinguish between the joyful shout and the sounds of people weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. What had happened? Well, pretty quickly, disappointment set in, right? They're looking at the foundations, and the old-timers start mourning a lost past. 
this, is, this, this isn't at all what we used to have. It didn't look a thing like what we were hoping. And, and, and maybe you resonate. Hey, and if you don't resonate now, you might later, right? <laughs> look around. It, it may be hard to imagine, but when we get into our new building, some of us may miss this rickety old gym. We may miss hearing those thunks of water bottles hitting the wood floor. We may miss uh, the cacophony that sounds when all our kids get up and just creak, 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 creak out to, to their classrooms. We may miss it. It's okay. See, change not only means things gained, it also does mean things lost. And it's okay to mourn. It's okay to mourn good things. We, we may miss what it was like to be, to, to be a mobile community making worship happen, right? But it's okay to mourn. It's okay to mourn loss. But the question is, and we have to examine our hearts in this, right? Are you going to let that loss grow into disappointment? Disappointment with what the Lord is doing, disappointment with where we're at. So that, that dissatisfaction is something we've got to guard our hearts against. And that happens not only in looking to a lost past, but it also can happen while looking to the frustrations of the present, right? So you see this in our own chapter in verse 3, uh, where, where the Lord himself says, he echoes the words that, have been, that the people of God themselves have been saying, hey, look at these foundations. Does this not look as nothing in your eyes? can imagine the conversation that they had. Well, back in Babylon, we had all these grand dreams, these thoughts of what a rebuilt temple might look like. And this, it's not anything like what we pictured it was going to be, right? And again, they, like, they were frustrated with the present reality of their circumstances. And maybe you resonate. And, and maybe if you don't now, you, you might eventually. Maybe, well, here's the thing. None of us are going to get all our preferences, right? We just aren't. And it's okay to have preferences um, and opinions on what could be better. Our preferences are valid. But will we allow frustrated preferences to lead us to disappointment? Again, check our hearts, right? So how does Jesus answer that? How does, how does the Lord speak into this context where his people are like, you got some who are celebrating and you have some who are mourning and it is so loud they hear them miles and miles away. How does the Lord answer? He says to them all, hey, y'all, this place, it's about me. It's not about y'all. This home is, is my home. And he says in, in verse eight, I own all the silver and all the gold in the whole world. I will make this house glorious. And he would later use the wicked King Herod to, to do that and make the temple one of the most glorious buildings that had ever existed in the ancient world. And it's kind of funny, don't you think? Like here the Lord's people are all, are all a little dissatisfied and the Lord himself isn't. God's people are disappointed. They're bemoaning about how pathetic this new little temple is gonna be. And the Almighty himself was happy with that ramshackle place. You wanna know why? Because it's not the space that's glorious, right? It's the glorious one who occupies that space. He is the one who matters. And so the answer to any dissatisfaction is to realize 
our preferences are very often very different from God's preferences, right? Just think about it. What, is, what has the Lord been pleased to use in the past? He chose a desert bush. He chose a, a, a stable to come into. A stable was the, it was the glorious place of his birth and entrance into the world. This echoey gym has been his sanctuary. And, and our building on Frontier Drive, which, by the way, is not going to be like something we're all going to moan and groan over. It's a, it's a beautiful space. I was there yesterday. You guys should go walk around. It's exciting, right? But even if it weren't, what matters is the Lord's presence in that space. And he chooses to use the little, the lowly, the nothing and fill it with himself, right? Um, so maybe we don't have to get all bent out of shape, right? Well, about colors of carpets and stuff like that. Okay? The king is the one who matters. This is his house of worship. It's not a space designed for like my personal satisfaction. It's about him. It's about the king. Let's keep that forever in front of us. All right, so if dissatisfaction is one temptation we face, uh, the other temptation that can be fairly common uh, is mission drift. All right, so what, what do we mean by that? Mission drift is losing sight of the king's mission because something else has become more important to us. Which, ironically, for a lot of churches, uh, once they get a building, can be that building. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a bit. But uh, what did mission drift look like in Haggai's day? Well, the very reason we have this whole book was because of mission drift. God's people had gotten into the land and fairly quickly started to build the temple. Then things got hard. And you can read more about that in Ezra 3 through 6 and Haggai chapter 1. Things got hard, and so they left off. And the foundations of God's home set derelict and empty for 18 years. And so the Lord sent Haggai. Uh, and, and he says, you know, we just read it. Be strong, O Zerubbabel. Work, all, all, all you people of land. Work. He had to send Haggai so that they would get their focus off their own needs, which had become what was most important to them, and shift it back onto the king's mission, what he had called them to do. So 500 years later, the Jews would actually go from not thinking at all about the temple of God to making it what was most important to them and losing its role in mission. So this is where we're going to hearken back to what Brandon read earlier in Matthew uh, chapter 21. Does Jesus' reaction in the temple when he's clearing things out seem strong to you? It's kind of uncomfortable. It's like you, you get this glorious picture. The king is riding into Jerusalem and then he's like whipping people and overthrowing tables and all. It seems a little strong, right? It's one of Jesus' strongest reactions. So we have to ask the question, right? Okay, the king, you gotta get it in the whole context. The king has come into his royal city and he overturns the temple system. It was a pivotal moment in Jesus' ministry and probably the one that got him killed. You have to ask the question, what got him so fired up, right, to do that? Well, to understand that, you have to understand the house of prayer reference. And this isn't, as some of us might be tempted to think, uh, a comment on, y'all are making my place noisy. Otherwise... I'd hate to see what Jesus would, have, would do here at Holy Cross. <laughs> uh, it's, not, it's not there's noise in my worship service. It's not how it's supposed to be. No, and, and, and honestly, a lot of us probably grew up thinking, well, maybe uh, it's because the temple leaders had turned God's worship into a money-making scheme. Now, that could be part of it, right? 
But anyone who was listening to Jesus at that moment would have recognized he was quoting from two passages in the Old Testament. The first passage being Isaiah 56. And this is a beautiful passage. If you have never read it, I encourage you to. It's a beautiful passage where the Lord welcomes non-Jews, you and me, people like us, welcomes them into his home, into his temple. He says, my home is to be a house of prayer for all peoples, Jews and Gentiles alike. And then Jeremiah 7, uh, Jesus quotes in the Den of Thieves section. Jeremiah 7 is the Lord's indictment against his people because they oppressed the sojourner and the wanderer, people like you and me, who non-Jews, and the helpless, and for living lives that didn't reflect God and his standards and his ways. And then they arrogantly just assumed, well, we're going to be protected from any kind of consequence because we got the Lord's temple and God wouldn't let anything happen to his temple, right? And the Lord responds in Jeremiah 7 saying, y'all, you've made my home a den of thieves. And you don't think I'm going to let the Babylonians come in here and clean house? You got another thing coming. Those are the two passages Jesus is quoting from. So what's, what's the real issue here, Spencer? Let's uh, pop up the picture here. The real issue, eh, it's kind of hard to see. Um, that where the red star is, that was where the temple, this is the whole temple complex and court. That blue outline there was a space reserved for Gentiles, for you and me, for people like us, right? And as one scholar says, and I'm going to quote, Caiaphas the high priest had quite recently moved the trade of the sacrificial animals from the Kidron Valley, which is just to the right there below the, uh, the Temple Mount, um, from the Kidron Valley to the very court of the temple designed for God-fearing Gentiles to use in worshiping and praying to the Lord. That's where Jesus was throwing money around. That's where Jesus was chasing animals out. What had happened? Mission drift. Mission drift. See, God's people, like, like in verse seven uh, of Haggai, the Lord says, I'm going to use my temple to draw the nations and their precious things. What's one of the most precious things a nation can bring? Well, the very souls, right? God was gonna use the temple to draw the nations. But rather than this building being a gathering place for the nations, God's people had turned that space into a, a livestock market. Because as far as they were concerned, there was no difference between a non-Jew and an animal. The building became about them. It became about them and their needs, not about the king and his mission to draw the lost, right? And so the king himself cleaned house. Just like he had sent the Babylonians to do 500 years before, and just like in 35 years later, he would send the Romans to do, and they leveled this whole complex so that not one single stone was standing on top of another. Mission drift. Hey, uh, you can move past that, Spencer. Um, Y'all have seen Mission drift, I'm sure, right? In churches. You know kind of what that's like. Um, churches forget the primacy of the king. They lose sight of who is on the throne, who all of this is about in the first place. They lose sight of the king. And then they make everything about them. They neglect his mission. And so churches die. Whenever you see a dying church, that's almost always what's happening. Mission drift, right? So uh, what does mission drift look like in our area? And this is just something that 
this is why I'm doing this. So we can take cautionary tales of what we see out there, right? And, and just make sure we are checking ourselves the entire way, okay? Uh, so mission drift in, in our context might look like, well, our mission becomes the building, right? It becomes all about preserving this space for us. Churches become more cons concerned about preserving a building than building the kingdom. And then we have the, some churches like, this space will only be used by us and we're not gonna use, let anybody else in it, right? You've seen that happen. So the mission can become the building or else you just give up on mission entirely. Uh, the building becomes the place where we escape for like our weekly dose of, of spirituality and we give up reaching our friends, our neighbors, our family, our loved ones. Um, in fact, I heard about this one church where they built this grand cathedral of a building and then the people uh, in church leadership said, why do we need to do outreach? Like the building will draw everybody. Just let, a, let throw open the doors, let people come in. Um, the Lord uses people to draw people, right? And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. Okay, that's the, that's the dour bit. That's the, those are the temptations, those are the warnings. Uh, again, don't, don't feel down by that. The reason we, we discuss them is so that we can just be aware. Right? Be aware of whatever temptations, tendencies we might have in our own hearts. Let's shift. Let's move away from the temptations we might feel to what the Lord would have us do, perhaps, with this building, right? Uh, and, and to do that, we're going to have to do this big flyby overview of, of the concept of the temple in the Bible. Um, so we're going to move to the temple. Here's some disclaimers, though. There are some Christians who might call their house of worship a temple, but as we're going to see in a little bit, uh, the buildings that we Christians use for worship uh, are not temples the way that the Lord's had set aside a specific space for him in the Old Testament for his worship, okay? So let's not take everything the Bible says about a temple and then make a one-to-one -one correlation with our place on Frontier Drive. That's, that's a different thing entirely, okay? But there are three functions of a temple that I'd like us to look at and, and ask the question, okay, well, if this is what the temple did back then, how might that inform our space and what we do uh, on Frontier Drive, okay? So here are the three things. The temple was a place of meeting, a place of reconciliation, and a place of glory. All right, so place of meeting. Let's start with that one. Uh, kind of, first, let's just think, what is, what is a temple in the first place, right? We gotta define that. Well, in the ancient world, uh, people would have thought that a temple was kind of like the home, a palace of a particular deity. He lived there, or at least either actually presently or symbolically, right? Uh, it was the God's home. Now, the God of the Bible makes very clear, you can't build a space that contains me. You can't build a space that is glorious, glorious enough for me. Um, and so his temple only ever represented his presence, represented his home among his people. Like he says in Haggai in verse 5 here, right? He says... Um, According to my covenant, which my promise-bound relationship with you, my spirit is in your midst. I'm living among you, right? And so the temple in, in Jerusalem was, was God's home. It was God's space. It was, it was where he had created space for human beings to meet with him, right? You couldn't just meet with God anywhere. You had to go onto his turf. And then comes Jesus. So we're going to do a flyby over you, right? Then comes Jesus, God became a man. And John 1 says he made his home in human form. God, the infinite spirit, 
took up residence in a temple of finite human flesh. That should blow our minds. Um, Finite human flesh. And that temple, Jesus, walked around all of Palestine and people met the Lord God face to face in the person of Jesus. So here's my question. Where do people meet God now? Where do people meet with the Lord now? Want to know something? In you. People meet with the Lord God in you and me as we bring them his word, right? Because King Jesus sent his spirit into his people. And God's spirit doesn't just remain in our midst as it says here in Haggai. It actually dwells within us. The king has made us, his church, his dwelling place, his temple, his house, as we heard in in, in 1 Peter 2 that Brandon read. Y'all, the church isn't a building. The church is us. We are God's temple. We are God's resident place, the place for God to meet with his people. So what does that mean for our new building? Okay, first, um, we have to say all this stuff on the front end, right? Because we don't want to have it catch us on the back end and be surprised by it. Let's never be the kind of church that fights over a building and destroys God's temple, our relationship with our brothers and sisters, right? That's not who we are as Holy Cross, but we've also never had a building of our own. Let's not be the kind of church that fights over a building and tears down God's temple. Because in the grand scheme of things, right, the Lord Jesus could probably care less about what happens on Frontier Drive. But he does care a ton about what happens to people bearing his image and in whom his spirit dwells. He cares very deeply for that. All right, so let's not, let's not fight over a building. Second, um, Let's go be church. Let's all of us go be church every single day. See, it's really, really rare for anyone to meet the Lord apart from another person. Yes, there are stories, outlying stories of someone sitting down reading the Bible and discovering the Lord, someone who had a vision of Jesus, like all that sort of stuff. But by and large, if people are going to meet the Lord, the king has willed that if people are going to encounter him and know him, it's because other people are showing him, right? And I really highly doubt we'll ever have a story of somebody who came to Jesus because they were sitting in the sanctuary on Frontier Drive and it was empty. Just sitting there and meeting Jesus. No, they'll meet Jesus because his people are there. They'll meet Jesus through us, right? So let's keep from mission drift. Let's, let's help people encounter Jesus and know Jesus by showing him. All right, so the temple was a place of meeting. It was also a place of reconciliation. So what does that mean? Well, the Bible makes really clear that we're rebels. We human beings rebelled against the Lord, and in doing so, we shattered our relationship with him primarily, and then because of that, we shattered our relationship with each other, and the whole world kind of unraveled. We shattered things so that all things do not work the way they should. And so the temple served in some sense, like think of it, this word picture. The temple was like God's workshop where God mended broken things. Primarily mending our relationship with him, but then also like mending relationship between people and people. It was, the temple was the place where you're supposed to get this window, this picture of what it looked like when shalom breaks through on earth. Shalom being like God, the, the working of all things the way God intended them to. 
And shalom is what God not only made the world for, but what he intends to restore the world to, right? He says that even in the very last verse of our passage, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give shalom. I will bring peace. So what did it take? What did it take to bring that peace, to bring that wholeness, to bring shalom? Well, it took Jesus, right? God took the image of a rebel. He died a rebel's death, the death that you and I should have died for our rebellion. And he placed us rebels then in his family with our faces turned toward each other rather than away. And now he's using us, we who were former rebels who wrecked his kingdom to clean up the mess in his kingdom, proclaiming that our, proclaiming to other rebels that there is a gracious and forgiving king he will forgive. It's a free message of salvation. He promises one day to restore every last remnant of the shattering that we cause from the death in our cells to the dying of stars. He will restore all things. So what does that mean for us in our new building? Well, hey, God willing, um, everything that will happen in this building and in our other building provides people with a window into heaven, a glimpse of what it looks like when, when God is on his throne, of that picture of shalom, of the Lord restoring broken relationships, right? And the most important relationship restored is the one that we have with him. And then from that, the relationships we have with one another. So in that space, the Lord's good news will echo off the walls in the preaching, in the singing, in the prayers, in the confessions, in the warm handshakes, hugs, and smiles that God's people give each other, the passing of the peace. All pictures of the gospel, pictures of the king's good news of free forgiveness for rebels, right? That's the heartbeat of our church. And that will be the heartbeat of our church in our new space too. The gospel must be first and foremost. But that good news doesn't stay in the four walls of that building just like it doesn't stay in the four walls of this building, right? Here's the temptation. Just another micro temptation. Getting into a building, kicking our feet up, and being like, ha, ah, I can experience shalom now. And the funny thing is, the moment we do that, the one moment we kick up our feet and say, ah, I'm going to now sit back and, and, and rest. This is Eden for me. It turns into hell. <laughs> God's I probably shouldn't say hell. Yeah, whatever. Um, it's God's people turning in on each other, right? The moment we, we treat a space as if it were, this is it. This is God's kingdom on earth. No, instead, our building shouldn't be a bunker where we hide away from like the dark world out there. It should be a launching pad a base of operations, right? A place where our king sends us as agents of his light into a dark world to shine the light of Jesus, just like we heard again in 1 Peter 2. All right, so a quick uh, practical thing for you. What can you do now as we're waiting? What can you do now? Can I just encourage you, let's pray. Pray. Pray that God will use our space on Frontier Drive, the way he did back in Acts 2, where all the, all the apostles and disciples were huddled, afraid in this dark little upper room, and then God's spirit came and he burst alive into their hearts. And then they flooded, they went out and flooded the world with 
God's good news. Let's pray that our space there becomes that. That we, we can gather in a community, feel the Lord worshiped and glorified, feel his spirit burst alive into us and send us out on mission. Because here's why. Before the king does any great work of his, he stirs his people to pray. Almost always. Before God acts, we pray. He makes us pray. So let's be praying for that because then it's a good indication that that's what he wants to use that space for. All right? So let's pray. Finally, the temple was a place of meeting. The temple was a place of, of reconciliation. The temple was a place of glory. Glory. See, whether it's the Garden of Eden on God's freshly minted earth or that, that tent that he had Moses set up for him or the impressive sanctuary that he had the wealthy King Solomon build for him later or that pathetic little building that we read about here in uh, Haggai or the, the glorious renovation uh, of that pathetic little building by the wicked King Herod later um, or whether it was the very real human body of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's temple was primarily a showcase for his glory, a place where God's glory shone and emanated, a place for his glory, his majesty, his worthiness. See, the buildings themselves only ever mattered because the Lord was there. And that's what he reminds his people, right? In Haggai uh, 2, verse 7, he says, I will fill this house with glory. I am the glorious one. This place will be glorious because I am there. Hey, our, our building and the worship and life that we're gonna do there and then in our own homes and small groups and all that sort of stuff, again, those are just windows into the coming glory of our king. And it offers the world a glimpse into what that's gonna look like. One day, as, ha- as Habakkuk recalled um, back in chapter two of Habakkuk, The glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. One day everything will once again be beautifully and perfectly reflective of the wonder, glory, majesty, worthiness of our God, of our glorious King. And and friends, we Christians, we're gonna be there to see that. We're gonna be there to see that. Until then, who's the answer to our dissatisfaction? The king is. Let's not forget that. Who speaks definitively into our mourning of a lost past? The king. And let's not forget that. Who challenges our frustrated expectations in the present? The king. Let's not forget that. Who calls us to mission to anchor us from mission drift? The king. Let's not forget that. Who from the beginning initiated a relationship with us and gave us a way to meet with him? It's the king. Let's not forget that. Who pursued resolutely reconciliation with us and paid the price for us rebels to come home? The king. Let's not forget that. Who owns the building on Frontier Drive? The king. Let's not forget that. Whose house are we, you and me? The king's. Let's not forget that. Who makes his house glorious? The king. Let's not forget that. Because friends, who's all this about anyway in the first place? The king. Let's not forever forget that. Let's pray.
Lord, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. We long for that. Jesus, make us your agents. Fill our hearts with a wonder and an amazement at our king and send us out on mission, Lord. We thank you that you have preserved us, you have walked with us through our 13, 14 year long history. We thank you that you're gonna give us a space to call our own, a a base of operations. And Jesus, we ask that you would be in that space. I pray, Jesus, that you would fill our hearts with your mission, with a longing to see other people encounter, know, and show you. And Jesus, would would you send us out from there so that the world might know your name because you are worthy. We pray all this in your name, King Jesus. Amen.